0: On this episode of Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. In
1: 1976, the small Oklahoma town of Sapulpa was rocked by the brutal murder of the beloved head football coach, husband, and father. In an instant, Jerry Bailey's life was cut short at the hands of his assistant football coach. In this episode, we will talk with Kurt McCracken, author of the book Because of the Hate, The Murder of Jerry Bailey, and we will also hear from Terry Holbrook, who was one of the last people to see Coach Bailey alive that day. All this and more coming up on episode six of Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton.
0: Welcome to the Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton podcast. Brought to you by Mojo Merchandise. Join radio veteran Rick Hampton and his guests for informative and entertaining discussions as they take you behind the scenes Behind the Stories, Behind the Music, and more. Originating from the Big Daddy Studios, it's time to go Behind the Mic, and here's your host, Rick Hampton.
1: Welcome into Episode 6 of Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. My special guest today is a good friend, and I use that loosely a little (laughs) bit, but a managing editor of the Sand Springs Leader and the author of the book, Because of the Hate, a true story about the murder of Jerry Bailey. Welcome, Kurt McCracken, to the podcast. Thank you. Also joining us today, he was a sophomore at the time, I believe. He saw the Coaches leave the school together that morning. Welcome to the podcast. Another friend I just met, um, and it's good to have you on, Terry Holberg. Good to be here. We've talked about this book for a long time, Kirk, and I know that you are a huge fan of true crime stories. Me too. I love them, and that's one reason why we talk so much. The first day the book came out, I actually downloaded the book (laughs) and read it from Digital Coverter. To digital cover right then i went and bought a book read it again so i had it actually physically in my hands gave it away mm-hmm. and then had your agent sent me a copy That's of it right. again yeah and i've read it again so this is the third time i have read this book um so it is a good one as they call it a page turner yes now it came out in january of 2018 yeah right yeah but the prep work and the whole original manuscript. Now, that started long before that, right?
2: Yeah, it started about probably 2003, 2004. And um, it was just one of those deals where I stumbled upon it. I had known about the story since I was a little kid and uh, Terry can probably go into more detail about this, but he was uh, Terry, you know, Terry was involved in, in the situation. He was, mm-hmm. he was there when it was going on as a kid. I had always heard about it, but it was kind of like this story that no one talked about. Right. So there were all of, there was all this information that just wasn't necessarily accurate. And so I had gone pretty much my whole life thinking this had happened or that had happened. And so when I stumbled upon, uh, I was actually looking up old football records and whenever I stumbled upon, Uh, the actual story of the two coaches uh, going missing that one morning uh, in 1976, I thought, oh, man, I want to get as much information as possible and just soak it up just so I could go to my parents who had told me some of the rumors and stuff, immediately found out, A lot of the big rumors were were not either not accurate or just flat out wrong. Mm -hmm. And so the more information I gathered, the more obsessed I became with it. And after several months, I had all of this information just piled up in front of me. And I thought, well, I'm just going to kind of put this together and then give the information to my parents and say, hey, here's what I found out. But as I started writing, I kept going and thought, I could write a book out of this. I swear to you, I had no intention of writing a book whenever I started looking into it. Mm -hmm. And then with all this information, I decided to put that together. And so it started about 2003, 2004. I wrote it, put it away for about 10 years. I probably finished it in about 2008, Mm -hmm. 2007, something like that. And then I put it away, said, you know, no one's ever going to buy this. I tried to you know, go to some major, uh, companies and, and I tried to get a book agent and that was impossible. So I completely put it away. And then a couple of years ago, I, I want to say it sat for about 10 years. And then a couple of years ago, my kids were like, you've got to publish your book. You've got to publish your book. So I, I got it out re-read it absolutely hated it right uh i just did not like the but way now, i wrote why did then. you
1: hate it though you you told me why but why why did you I, feel it was, like it?
2: i was a horrible writer back then yeah. and but that's what's funny is it's hard for me to say because um i'm pretty pleased with myself you know most of the time yeah. but i was you such make a, that aware <laughs> yeah you're I was very humble an, exactly <laughs> just ask it it's hard you. to be humble when you're this good but right just it was when I got, first got started writing mm-hmm. and it was it read like a news story yeah if you wanted just the information it was perfect yeah I mean it painted no pictures of the town of the coaches of the mm-hmm. situation so I completely rewrote it and and absolutely loved it and then published it
1: and, 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 and a side note to that is it kind of uh spurred your son on right yeah. as well to start writing and really getting into uh, fleshing out stories and stuff like that
2: yeah he he was really instrumental my daughter who's now 22 She helped me edit it. If you find any mistakes, it was me, not her, because I mean she's meticulous, right? Oh yeah. Um, But he was like, no, we need to do this. You need to say more about that. And almost every suggestion he had was accurate, was Mm -hmm. right. But as far as someone who encouraged me from the very beginning. Was, was Terry. And that's why I wanted to have him on with us because when I kind of threw that out to him that I was thinking about doing this or that just we just talked about it, I mean, we spent hours on the phone and we actually became really good friends because of our love for Sepulpa Athletics because we both graduated from there and I was the sports writer. But we actually loved watching their girls' basketball team because mm-hmm. they were so good whenever uh, I was the sports writer there. And so when we weren't talking about that, we were talking about this book. He was the one that would, would give me the inside, just little things here and there. And it would spur me on to say, okay, I've got to put that in the book. I've got to, I've got to research this. I mean, we right. even hopped in his truck one time and drove to Oakmogi to find uh, Rieger's house.
3: The one thing Kirk did in this was he was thorough in finding the facts finding the people involved at the time. Kent Thompson, the highway patrolman, Mm -hmm. he interviewed him. Some of the old coaches, Johnny Richardson, Jerry Dean, and Coach Stockard. Yep. You know, Coach Stockard was big in this with with Kurt. But Kurt went through and he had to weed out the people that were actually involved. Right. I, I say involved, but there at the time and the people trying to get into the story, you know, because there was some of that he had to deal with. He he did a real good job sorting through everything and getting to the fact.
1: Terry, why don't you take me back to 1976? if you can, and and talk to me a little bit about that morning, Um, because like in the book, I know that it was odd to those people that saw that that morning, like, where are they going? What's going on? I mean, what was going through your mind then? And knowing now what, you know, take me back to that time.
3: Well, that morning, I was actually late for school. (laughs) Surprise. Because because I had... (laughs) I had an orthodon, a legitimate orthodontist appointment. <laughs> legitimate. Instead and, of quote-unquote right, right. Right. orthodontist appointment. And I happened to come through the doors on the south side of the school by the cafeteria. Right after I got in the door, I mean, as soon as I opened the door, I saw them coming. They were 15 yards away from me. Mm-hmm. They got close. Rager spoke. He said hi. And Coach Bailey was right behind him, and he just, he just smiled and nodded his head. You know, I went on to class. Mm-hmm. I didn't think any more about it. And then later in the day, we're hearing that Coach Bailey wasn't in class all day. And then we find out even later, like that afternoon, late afternoon, evening, they're missing. Is that when it hit you that, wait a second, you know, I saw them. I saw them. I just saw them this morning. Trying to remember if it was Coach Stockard or uh, Mr. Pryor, Antoine Pryor, who was uh, a – He was
2: the athletic director at the time, I think, wasn't he?
3: Yes. Then I think that was like his last year. Right is that elect director i let one of those guys know that i saw them you know the next day that's all everybody's talking about Mm -hmm. they have the wrestling tournament there at the school right that's all that's talked about Mm -hmm. you know at some point someone gets on the loudspeaker and says that you know they found coach bailey and about that time i'm sitting in the stands and in school they let school out to come to the wrestling tournament Mm -hmm. my dad steps inside the door and motions me down to where he's at and i go out and he tells me and you know, then I look around and I see people that are upset and crying. And right. And then most of the guys on the football team go down to the uh, wrestling locker rooms. You know, everybody's upset, crying. That's that's basically what I remember. When I first, I did the same thing you did when the book came out. hmm Downloaded it and, and read it right yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it just, it brought back a flood of emotions. Right. You know. Kirk did a really good job on this. And, and
1: and I think so, too. I When you have an interest in the story, I mean, it makes it a lot easier to write, yeah. too. And you were talking about how it, it piqued your interest. Mm-hmm. When you laid that down, did you think about even picking it up again? No. Did you ever think about that at all? No, not
2: really. Yeah. I thought it was done. I mean, um, the industry is so weird now because when I first started, you could um, you could go to Barnes and Noble, or you could look online, and, and you know you could buy a book that told you how to get published by a major mm-hmm. publishing company, right? And there were all these steps you had to follow. You know, of course, you had to write the manuscript, then you had to find a booking agent, or a book agent, and then that book agent would then sell your your book, and then right. you're off and running. But now it's it's virtually impossible to do that as a first time writer, unless you're writing some book about something that's happened nationally and you're involved in it. You're yeah. in the know. Uh, now it's it's cheaper for those companies to uh, publish celebrity cookbooks. Uh, I mean, that's that's right. literally what sure. one of them told me. Like, that's what we're doing now. A true right. crime, once large true crime publishing company is now sub, you know, doing celebrity cookbooks. So uh, I really put it away, and self-publishing became a, a pretty big deal between that you know mm-hmm. that time that i put it down and then and decided to pick it back up so so that's the route that i went and um yeah i just said okay i've got to do this and then but when you do that you've got to promote it on your own right and you know do social media and stuff like that and uh i mean i had some of my friends after i after i Published it and I started promoting on social media. Some of my friends would send me messages and they were like, okay, we got it. We bought the book. Stop putting it on social right. media. But it's one of those things where You don't know how much is too much and you don't know how much is not enough, you know. Well,
1: and and that is true, you know, I mean, working in radio when I did and stuff like that, you know, we would we would assume because we talked about it on the air that people were listening to that. Right. But they don't. I mean, and it doesn't happen. So you have to continually repetitively say, just like with me, whenever I was going to launch this podcast, same deal. I mean, I was on my social media page constantly. Getting the same reaction by some people. Okay, we get it. We know you're going to have a show, whatever. But ultimately, you know, to get that message across, you have to do that. And so, when you picked that back up and you looked at it and you went back and you made a lot of changes to it and things like that, um, did you have? I know that in the beginning you talked about that with the book itself. Um, and we're not going to go a lot about what's in the book because I want right. you to get the book. Right. I mean, I, I trust me, you will love this book. It is fantastic. Let me ask you this. When you picked it back up and you started back in it again, was it easier to talk to people more now? I mean, to like to get more information or more story or, or other facts about the case?
2: To be honest, there wasn't really a whole lot of that. I did such extensive interviews and research the first Time mm-hmm. that I sat down with it, right. That the when I picked it back up again, it was more about painting a picture of the of the situation. And so, more than anything, I went back to the trial transcripts. Mm-hmm. You know, went through those and and got more information about what it looked like, what the scene looked like, what was being said, mm-hmm. what the conversations were. And then, you know, you've got to make sure that the timeline adds up and all that kind of stuff. But as far as talking to people, I I really didn't do a lot of that. It, that was mainly the early Early part of it, mm-hmm. and then the rest of it was was making it more interesting and more engaging. So whenever the people started, it, I it was to basically make it a page turner. Yeah, you know. And so then uh, I did take certain chapters and move them and say, okay, I want to make a cliffhanger here mm-hmm. and all that. So really, the I didn't do a whole lot of talking to people during that time. But um, to kind of add to that a little bit, but go in a different direction mm-hmm. was whenever I published it, I became really good friends with Jerry's sisters and with um, some of his family members. And so then my interaction was with them and them thanking me for doing this. And we'd love to have a book signing in Broken Bow because, you know, that's where they were from. Right, Or we'd love to meet you or, or, you know, the family really enjoys it, that kind of thing. That was really reassuring to me because whenever you do a story like this, it's the, the murder was brutal. Yeah. And I didn't pull any punches as far as what happened to him. Right. And And that was always really concerning to me because Terry will tell you, this was not talked about in Sepulpa. Like mm-hmm. after the trial, it literally was put in a, a safe and locked and just put away and people didn't talk about it. So whenever I was a kid, when I was in high school, I actually had Jerry's wife, Beverly, as a math teacher. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I always felt like I, I kind of knew a secret because no one talked about it. I mean, his name the The building that he helped uh, build, the the Bailey Building, was called the Blue Building, b- before he died. Yeah, um, that's what the high school kids kind of nicknamed it. Right. Well, it was named the Bailey Building after his death, and so it kind of the the Blue Building kind of stuck with people that weren't involved in the situation. Like, you know, Terry will tell you, the kids called it the Bailey building for a couple of years. But then it really kind of morphed back into the blue building. But if you talk to anybody from that era, they immediately corrected you and said, that's not the blue building. That's That's not the blue building. That's the Bailey building. So when I had her for a teacher, I always kind of felt like I had a I knew a secret, you know, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask her about it. But I never had the guts to because, like I said, it just wasn't discussed.
1: Why do you think they never talked about? I mean, it was never talked about again.
2: I want Terry to answer this question after I answer it okay. but um, personally I think it was because the family was so beloved in Sepulpa and here's the thing he had just resigned as a head coach and mm-hmm. didn't really have he, he had a lot of near misses or you know seasons that could have gone mm-hmm. one way or the other by just a field goal you know um, and so he wasn't the most successful coach in wins and losses at Sepulpa but as far as what he did for race relations and what he did for some of the players that didn't necessarily have uh, a lot of the things that the, the, you know, the players that came from wealthy Mm -hmm. families had, you know, what he did in town and the mark that he made, it's unbelievable. And so I personally think it was because the family was so beloved and because they stayed, Mm -hmm. his wife remained a teacher up until right before her death in 1998. And his kids, they hadn't gone through high school yet. So Guy, his son, was in junior high, and Deidre was about to go into junior high. She was still, I think, in, in fifth grade or something like that. If it was talked about, more than likely it would get back to them. Right. You, you didn't want to talk about it in front of them. But, but the adults in town had that same respect. That's my opinion. So, Terry, what do you think?
3: I, I think that's the case. You know, I, I had Miss Bailey as a teacher also. But I, I really, I, I believe that's the case. They stayed in town, and so it was just kind of pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they tried to get on with their lives the best they could, which would have been just, I mean, I can't imagine what they went through.
1: Right. You know. So having lived through that time period there at, at Sepulpa, did you ever think, oh, man, I want to ask her about this or I want to ask somebody about it? Did Did you also do the same, kind of just put it away and? okay it happened and we're moving on
3: basically that's mm-hmm. that's what happened I, I you know being there while this had happened I mean you base you thought you knew everything that went on mm-hmm. Kirk corrected me I, I you know the rumor always was that he was stabbed with a screwdriver mm-hmm. that's what I believe it became the gospel that's yeah. what I believe for 30 years yeah. yeah Kirk's like no we were talking on the phone he said no it was a knife. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's just one of the things, you know, that Kirk corrected in this, that that beliefs that people had, Yeah. you know, because we were always told it was a screwdriver.
2: And see, I, I had to break down the autopsy report to find out why people thought that. Yeah. And the initial stab wound ended up being circular because uh bailey fought back mm-hmm. when that happened i think it either looked like a bullet hole or mm-hmm. it looked like right. more of a it had a circular yeah, pattern like a, to it. Like yeah.
1: a, a screwdriver or, or, or an ice pick or something, or something like again. that
2: yeah mm-hmm. and so i think that that rumor was spread even through law enforcement because trooper thompson who ended up finding the body right in the trunk Uh, When I interviewed him and unfortunately he's passed away, but when, when I interviewed him, man, he had tons of detail. And I mean, literally it was like yesterday to him. He, Mm He literally could just, you know, recall everything, but he told me screwdriver and it just blew me away. And I thought, wow, you know, he's involved in law enforcement and that rumor has, has been around for so long. It just became truth. Yeah. And so when I told him that it blew his mind, and he believed me immediately. I mean, like, whenever I told him how yeah. I knew and everything, he was like, I have gone this whole time thinking right. it was a screwdriver.
1: Well, you know, and you touched on that rumor being one of them. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit, but uh, kind of tell me there were so many rumors about the story because it was kind of just compartmentalized and put away. Yeah. It became the gospel report. What other rumors were there, you know, kind of
2: swirling about this? Well, to be honest, I'd like to know, what some of them were that day, that in the following days. Do you remember?
3: I mean, I, I don't even think that that rumor had hit yet. Oh, okay. You know, okay. I, I don't think, you know, that came just a little bit later. Okay. You know, everybody was just upset at what had happened. Sure. Okay, so let me
1: ask you this. With with both of those knowing, at the time, they were reported missing, mm-hmm. both of them, and they really didn't know foul play. They didn't know what was going on, but they knew until there was some paperwork found with blood on it but let me ask you that with you being in that moment do you remember when was it that it kind of became a re- revelation that a rigor was the one
3: it was that later that friday mm. you know the words start getting back at what had happened right and so it, it was fairly quick And well, see in,
1: in painting that picture that's the thing you know nowadays we would think Oh my gosh, it'd be instantaneous. Sure. You know, and you'd know everything about the case because of social media social and everything media. else. Yeah. But that didn't exist. And, and so, therefore, Channel 8, I think it was that, you know, it was first media. But, you know, they didn't have, you know, they still had to, they would have had to go on back to the mm-hmm. station and edit yeah. tape and do all this stuff. So, you know, painting it into that, you know, 1976, that's a long ways away.
2: So it's. Well, at the very least, the reporter would have ran to a, a phone, right. uh, a payphone, which don't, which those don't exist anymore. Right. And then called. Called his you know copy editor you know the desk editor on duty or whatever and say hey here's the information the guy writes it down he'll write some copy and then they'll either put it in the newspaper or whether it's a TV station or whatever right. so I mean yeah they couldn't just pick up their cell phone well now when you look um, there was a, a murder that happened um, here in San Springs a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and, and I I was called out there to take a picture and to you know figure out what was going on and while I was there channel 2 six 8, uh, 23 you know they right. were all there every one of those stations had a a really pretty young girl, you know, as mm-hmm. a reporter and they all had their phones out and they were live, you know, Facebook live yeah. and the, you know, here's, we're on the scene, blah, 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 blah. And that's just so different than the right. way, than the way it was. But uh, when you're talking about rumors, me and Terry, actually, we've had conversations about the rumors that were going around and a lot of them, I don't feel comfortable mentioning sure. because it involved certain things that were never proven right. and um, none of it made Bailey look bad it, more than anything. It right. made, you know, regular look bad, but some of the rumors were that, like, whenever I grew up, I grew up thinking that he was found in the trunk of his car in the parking lot of the high school. Yeah. Now, obviously, he was found in Bixby in the and trunk see, of the car. And see, and
1: I know at least one person that believes that as well. Yeah. And i heard that
2: from somebody, yeah. you know, too. And right. and I heard it was a uh, a, a disgruntled parent. Yeah. I heard that for a long time. So in my head, I'm thinking he got killed because somebody's kid didn't get playing time. Yeah. Y- you know, that's right. what I grew up thinking. Right. And so there were a lot of those that existed years after because nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of felt like it was time to maybe set the record straight in the same token, honor his legacy And, and what he did that a lot of people don't know about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for years, his name wasn't even on the Bailey building. It was just a little monument. Yeah. It Mm -hmm. was an old football that was bronze and everything. And I want to say it was Onus Panky. I, it was Onus Panky that uh, it's now, it's one of the biggest I've seen on a weight, you know, weight room. Right. But his name is now, you know, emblazoned on the side. And so, yeah, I mean, there are just, there were, there were lots of rumors that I think they had time to ferment probably mm-hmm. throughout the years. So there probably weren't a lot at first. Mm-hmm. And then as people whispered it to each other, because no one really talked about it openly. Yeah those rumors kind of became truth.
1: It kind of stacked on and kind of piled on as you went through. Yeah, I I had heard that as well, that it it was in the high school parking lot. And then even the screwdriver, uh, there was a woman I talked to not too long ago. She had read the book and just totally shocked wait a minute no no no, that was a screwdriver i'm sure it was wrong
2: no it's not well i had one lady say oh my gosh whenever he went found missing and and he was found those were the longest two weeks of my life
1: i remember that one i remember that story and i was like like, and this was on social
2: media and i said no you know it was actually (laughs) basically less than 48 hours
3: right well reading some of the reviews of the book once it came out I would go back like every day and read the new mm-hmm. reviews and people thought it happened in seventy two, some seventy three. Yeah, they were know? questioning I mean, whether yeah. yeah yeah. No, Kirk, it happened yeah. in seventy two. Yeah. My
1: favorite yeah, my favorite was the woman though. I I do agree with you on yeah, that one. That one was my weeks. favorite too. They yeah, two weeks. That was the longest two weeks of my life. <laughs> well apparently you were checked out for a right. while because you know so you talked about the screwdriver a rumor that that was one that was in your head forever too any others that you that you can share or that you
3: thought oh man i you know i didn't even know that you know thinking back i, I think that's the one that really stands out to me is is the screwdriver because i you know i don't recall any other rumors not saying that there weren't right i'm sure there were
2: that was the big one that's that, yeah, the one that that was i heard big more one. than anything
3: Well, it sounds like it if, you
2: know, if
1: uh, the trooper that found his body, who who he had a personal tie to because they were they were friends, you know, they were friends. Um, You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to give away the line, but it's uh, one of the best lines in the whole book, honestly, was whenever he was found when he opened that trunk. I'll be honest. I got a little teary eyed at first because I thought, man, you know, I mean, I can't imagine lifting the trunk lid and finding one of your friends that you play you know, poker with or that you hang out with and everything else. And and whenever he uttered the word, oh, Jerry. Yeah. You know, I knew, you know, I read that emotion into that line because, yeah. I, you know, that's what was going through his mind, too. You know, he was hoping and praying that he lifted that trunk lid and it wouldn't be anybody in there or it wouldn't be Jerry in there. Right? It was.
3: If I'm not mistaken, I think Kent Thompson led the funeral procession. Yeah, you know. He yeah. Was- and
2: it was um, in a newspaper. Kent Thompson told me this, but in a newspaper article, it said that whenever he arrived at the cemetery, Uh, which was a couple miles away Mm -hmm. from the... The cars were still leaving the parking lot of First Baptist Church, they kept coming. Yeah. I mean, like if you were trying to get somewhere that day in Sepulpa, you were screwed. You just yeah, had to pull bad. over. Right. Yeah. And to me, that's a testament to, yeah. uh, to Jerry Bailey, to him, yeah, yeah, his legacy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have talked about when you were writing the book and the reviews that you were reading, Terry and things like that. I know that you had several armchair authors yeah. who yeah. wanted to give you advice on what you should have done or sure. how you should have done this, or maybe you should have left this out or added this in. I personally think, you know, my opinion is, is that what do you say to those folks? Nicely. But, but I think it's important when you're telling the story to put somebody in 1976. Yeah. It was a different time in yeah. a-, a different time for media different time for you know communities and things like that and nothing like that had happened you know really in Sepulpa. Um, so what do you tell people
2: the most critical part uh, the most criticism I've received was that uh, some of the uh, history of Sepulpa football was mm-hmm. unnecessary and I'll be completely honest it was kind of self-serving I wanted people to read their name and want to buy the book mm-hmm. <laughs> so I threw as many names in there but I also thought it was relevant to a certain extent and mm-hmm. there have been some people that have said, I absolutely loved the statistics, the mm-hmm. you know, the history uh, of of Sepulpa football, but those people they had a vested interest in the town and the football team and stuff. So, as far as you and I know each other really well, mm-hmm. and um, I probably don't handle criticism the best. You know, what I love to argue with people. Sure. With this, I've actually been relatively tame. Yeah. Um, anytime anyone said that, I thought there was too much, too many statistics. I, I was like, I get it. I, I really do. Yeah. Uh, when the people, if anyone challenged whether it was true or not, yeah, or the facts. Certain, the but, facts. Yeah. I was probably a little bit more harsh because I don't think anybody can argue anything in it because it's all from, uh, you know, interviews, court transcripts, right. you know, that kind of thing. I don't ever go into what was in somebody's state of mind because I don't know. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to. Recreate a conversation that didn't happen. You know, that morning, whenever uh, Guy Bailey, you know, running off to class and he saw his dad and Rager talking in the parking lot, that conversation that's in the book was retold by Guy in the court transcripts, you, you know, in, right. during Rager's trial and whenever I talked to him on the phone and it, it didn't change. Right. So, you know, that kind of stuff, I was probably a little more. I probably got a little more sideways with that kind yeah. of stuff, but
1: well, one thing I will say, I do know that, you know, by reading the book and then talking to you off, off air, I, I know that you did your homework. Oh. I mean, I know that you did your work. I know that you put in the time to interview people and then the same, just like with that, with the guy, like even the conversation, you know, it doesn't go in depth in the book. I mean, I'll be right. honest with you. You're not going to open it up and go, Oh my God.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> but that's because that was what was told. Yeah. And that that's part of record, not you guessing what else he might have thought, because that's not fact at that right. point. That becomes what you think he said or whatever. So I think it's great that it's in there. And I honestly would stand on anything in this book, too. And I, And I love the fact that, I mean, you're in on the story. You know, you know where it's headed and you know what's going on and what you know what it is. And so for me, it was great because that one chapter would end and then you go to the next chapter and it may be something about, you know, a backstory or Mm -hmm. or, or a piece of that to fill in some of the facts. Right you know, to put you in that time era. I know that you talked about uh, NoWata in mm-hmm. there as well. Yeah. And you kind of have a family tie there yeah. uh,
2: with Coach Bailey. Yeah. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, and my family's from NoWata. Mm-hmm. We moved to Sepulpa when I was in kindergarten. Um, we actually went from NoWata to Sand Springs for a year or a year or two, and then to Sepulpa when I was in kindergarten. But uh, my parents both graduated from NoWata. My grandparents are still in NoWata and Coach Bailey won a state championship in 1970, mm-hmm. and my cousin was the starting quarterback on the team. I still to this day say that that season, that story could be a book on its own, and I think it. I think it rivals "Remember the Titans" or whatever football movies out there, just because they flat out weren't supposed to win; they weren't supposed to even make the playoffs. And you the know. quarterback's name? Uh, D. Page. There you go. Uh, that's my cousin. So yeah, I had heard stories about coach Bailey as a coach from him. And then my, my aunt Cheryl page, she babysat, I think a few times for the Bailey's and I think they lived close to them. I mean, everybody in No Water lives close Mm -hmm. together in the town, but yeah, so that, so I had heard about him as a coach from them. And then that would kind of start the conversation about his death. You know, when Mm -hmm. I was a kid, that's kind of the tie there. And so Bailey went from no water to Sepulpa and then You know, I think he had five years. Uh, He was from 71 to 76, Mm -hmm. and and then he resigned. And he was going to go on to coach somewhere else. I've heard a million different places. Me and Terry have had this conversation. And, And when you talk about the research and everything like that, I really can't express how involved Terry was, because there were some nights I would just get a phone call and he'd say, Hey, I remembered, you know, whenever Mm -hmm. we were having practice or blah, blah, blah. And it just would add more to the story. And even if I didn't necessarily use that chunk, Mm -hmm. it might have led to me finding something else out or asking another question. So
1: let me ask you that. Were they both your coaches? Did you have them as a coach?
3: Yeah, I was, I was a sophomore. So Mm -hmm. obviously I I got no playing time, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, everybody in practice – Rager was the offensive line coach. Uh-huh. Johnny Richardson was my position coach. But, I mean, Rager was just an intimidating guy, you know, especially for a 16-year-old sophomore, that's uh-huh. tall, skinny kid. And, I mean, he would just <laughs> look at you and you'd be intimidated by him. He, And he, he was hard on everybody in practice. He, he got on – I think he got on – he got on everybody but me. I don't think he ever jumped on me. But I saw him jump on players, and I thought, man, that guy's just mean. Mm. You know, he's nothing but mean. But th- the real amazing thing about this whole deal with Kirk doing his research is I wouldn't know a percentage, but most of the people involved were still around, mm. you know. And he interviewed them. Some passed away after he interviewed them. Mm-hmm. I think you got to interview Mr. Dodson, mm-hmm. Kent Thompson. I mean, a lot of the football coaches. I gave him names oh, of yeah. a lot of junior and senior right. football players from mm-hmm. that year to mm-hmm. contact. Well, and you know? and
2: the first phone call that I made as an interview was to Steve Shibley senior right who was the athlete who was my athletic director when I played soccer and football uh, at Sepulpa but he was the wrestling coach when this happened yeah he's actually the very last person to see them alive right. or to leaving they he yeah. saw them in the cars they were leaving town so Terry was probably the last student to see them leave the school mm-hmm. unless someone might have seen them in the parking lot but you know right. none of those as I
1: far mean, as even record too yeah, as far you know, as record one of goes, yeah, months, yeah yeah
2: so uh, when I called him, it w- the first conversation we had was it was a great conversation because at first he was, kind of quiet a little bit and then all of this information came flooding out it seemed to me like it was cathartic for him mm-hmm. because he i would probably say that he hadn't talked about it in years
3: oh i'm sure uh, a lot of people have suppressed it and it's yeah you know
1: see i wondered about that too you know with it being compartmentalized and kind of put away on a shelf somewhere then was it like the floodgates opened, oh, or yeah. was it the band-aid being ripped off oh, i yeah. mean it's you know like,
3: it was like amy had sliced about 12 <laughs> onions in the kitchen and yeah you know that it, it did. It block, brought back a flood of emotions. You know, he, he did a tremendous job on this.
1: We're going to take a break, but I wanted to tell you this story real quick. But uh, <laughs> so right after I read the book, I was taking my daughter Cheyenne to school. Uh, and we were at the intersection there by Charles Page High School, taking her to the band room that morning. And a car passed us coming through the intersection at the light. And she said, Oh, hey, that's coach so and so. And you know, my first thought was, Oh, what make and model of car was it? And did he have anybody in there with him? You know, because that might come back later. Right. So, you know, I thought, man, I'm really living this book too much. You know,
3: Well, so. well the, the thing about Coach Bailey was he had that blue El Camino. You know, after practice, there would be guys that didn't have rides. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're talking 76. Right. So, or 75 football season. hmm so you would see ten or twelve or maybe even fifteen guys in the back of that hanging El Camino, off the back of that El Camino. And he was taking people home. And he
2: wasn't afraid to drive up to the hill. No. You know, didn't. which the hill was was a predominantly well, black part uh, of Sepalpa. Right.
3: I remember our very first meeting before the first practice. What what he did that year was have a camp, basically. We were we would get there at six in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we were there till after the last practice in the evening. So it was like an all-day-long thing. We had three practices a day. Wow. And now they can't do that. Now right. they can't practice them past an hour. That's right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's, and And he told us the very first meeting, I don't care if you're black, white, brown, yellow, blue. Everybody is treated the same, mm-hmm. and you all have the same opportunity. He goes, I don't play favorites. That's awesome
2: I've heard that From so many people
1: When we come back We'll talk a little More about that Because that kind of Sets up part of the book You are hanging out With Kirk McCracken And Terry Holbrook We are going to be back In just moments With Behind the Mic With Rick
0: Hampton Don't go anywhere More of the Behind the Mic podcast Is next I'm Mo And
2: I'm Sheila Jo And And we're Mojo Merchandise. Merchandise Mojo Merchandise Was created by two friends With a craft passion
3: We love to make things As gifts Like baby shower presents Wedding shower presents Party decorations and balloon bouquets.
2: There is nothing we can't do once we put our mind to it.
3: We specialize in vinyl printed t-shirts,
2: home decor signs, pillowcases, cups,
3: and much more. If you have a favorite scripture or a mom saying you want on a t-shirt or sign, we've got you
0: covered. If you have an idea or needing a gift, let Mojo Merchandise make exactly what you need. You're listening to the Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton podcast. Hey, thanks, Candace. We are back
1: with Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton. My special guest today is Kirk McCracken, author of the book, Because of the Hate. And we're going to talk about that in a second. We're also joined by Terry Holbrook. And I'm hearing for the first time how involved you were in kind of getting some of this story out. And it sounds like that it was pretty important for you, too, to get it out.
3: Well, it it was. And I I knew Kirk would, would do a good job with this. And I knew he was going to be thorough. And so I tried to provide him with everything I knew and could remember and names of people that I knew that could remember mm-hmm. you know the the one thing he did was track down most of the coaches that were there at the time right and he he went through a lot and I'm I'm still amazed that he put this all together yeah well, you know,
1: we were talking before the break, we were talking about race relations, yeah. and we were talking about there is uh, uh, mentioned in the book uh, quite a bit of a uh, story about that. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, because you were talking about how Coach Bailey made it very clear from the beginning, hey, you know, there's no favorites, and there's no, I don't see skin color. Exactly. And so everybody's equal on this field, and y'all are, every one of you going to have to hustle, you're going to have to, you know, get it on your own. And, and I think that's cool. You know, we're talking about, wasn't afraid to go to the hill, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was pre- predominantly black yeah. then. So tell me about that a little bit. How does that play into the story? Because, I mean, even the title itself right. is kind of from that.
2: Well, and, it, and the title has kind of caused a little bit of controversy with people. I did a book signing in No Water, and uh, one of the first people that walked through the door was a little old lady. She was like, I don't like the title of this book and I said I'm sorry and she said yeah I don't remember there being any hate I don't remember there and I said well it's actually a quote um I said it's not something that I came up with whenever Rager was asked why he did it Mm -hmm. he said I guess it was because of the hate and so when I explained that to her she really didn't want to accept my answer and there were some other people that said that they really didn't like the title either because they thought it kind of painted maybe the town in a bad light that it was he killed him for race reasons, mm-hmm. and that that wasn't true. I mean, he that's not why he did it, and that's not has nothing to do with the title. You know, race right. has nothing to do with the title. But um, if anyone was to pretend there weren't really pretty bad ra- racial tensions in sepulpa at the time, they're kidding themselves. Because right. at one point there was a race riot, for lack of a better term, at the high school, and the National Guard had to be called in. So there there were some race things. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, the the guy who runs the uh, his name escapes me but the guy who runs the uh, the museum and the historical society he at Sepulpa he was kind of he wasn't upset with me but we had a, an interesting conversation because he thought that I alluded that Sepulpa was still segregated mm-hmm. and I was like well they are to a certain extent anybody can live anywhere they want in Sepulpa there are black people that live down in town and then there are white people that live up on the hill but if you look at the demographics there are still the, the hill is still predominantly black it's not segregated in the sense that they're forced to live up there right but it is in the sense that that's kind of what the way it's always been. And that was the that was what I was trying to paint in the book. Mm-hmm. There was a time where they had to live on the hill. They yeah. couldn't live in town. Right. And now that that's different, it's still kind of the same. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same kind right. of a deal. He thought I was saying that it's still forced. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that I was saying that at all. But I was trying to paint a picture that at the time there there were some, some tensions. And uh, Terry lived through it. He could probably right. say more about it. I could
3: let me think what year there was a riot at the school in the early 70s so we're just talking maybe three or four years before this happened and I never saw from any of the guys on the team any kind of racial problem I Mm -hmm. mean it was a pretty good tight-knit group you know and with some exceptional athletes Victor Mackey uh, Theodore Pearson those guys were seniors that year 75 Mm -hmm the 75 season, Ronald Mackey, Ronald Pearson. I mean, you know, and we all got along and everybody, there was never a problem. Kurt, you said you were talking about that Bailey
1: was kind of a pioneer with mm-hmm. race relations or was trying to, you know, do that. We haven't ever talked about it, but those that don't know, uh, Paul uh, Rager was black. Yeah. And so he was part of the staff. And then you were talking about it as well. You know, it sounds like, you know, maybe one of the reasons why there wasn't a lot of race relations problems on the team was because coach Bailey immediately said, "Hey, you know, we're all equal here," you know. Exactly. I mean, put it put it right there. and said, "Hey, you know, we're working along excite each other. We're, you know, we're going to we're going to work you, but you got to you got to earn it." Mm-hmm. And it doesn't depend on, you know, the color of your skin. So
3: Exactly.
2: You know, he was a pioneer that way. Well, and from what i've been told and, and terry's told me this as well as other coaches and and players yeah he said everyone's equal but it was more about the way he treated everyone yeah. he didn't stand up on a soapbox and say i'm a social justice warrior i'm going to bring about change mm-hmm. he told the players hey if the good players are going to play no matter what the color right. of their skin and we're all going to treat each other good you know we're, we're going to mm-hmm. treat each other great we're going to be a family, but he didn't, you know, look for the newspapers or the right. spotlight and say, I'm right. going to bring about change in Sepulpa. It was through his actions yeah. more than anything yeah. and the way he treated people and the way that people saw him taking the black players home, you know, in mm-hmm. the back of his, of his El Camino or, in, you know, some of the players were piled in the front with him, and some yeah. in the back. And so to me that speaks volumes yeah. because it was more about what he did Yeah the example than what he That said. he said yeah. yeah
1: Instead of trying to be Some you know He wasn't banging a gong Or right, you know no, whatever He no. was for the attention He was actually Living it out You so. know
2: and and Coach Ryan's the Coach Ray Ryan's The head basketball coach He's probably one of the Funniest guys you'll ever Talk to and he's not Trying to be funny yeah. I mean he's just He's just a, a, a goofy guy Great basketball coach mm-hmm. But he was telling me A story one time That involved race And uh, he told me that uh, Some black kids In the parking lot Squared off with some White kids in The parking lot. They were not going to back down. Mm -hmm. Neither side was going to back down. Right. And a teacher ran into the teacher's lounge and was like, there's, you know, going to be a fight out in the parking lot. And, you know, you need to get out there and help. And Coach Ryan was like, why are you asking me? And she's like, you need to get out there and help. And he looked at the female teachers and he was like, you guys want equal rights. Why don't you guys get out there? <laughs> and he said it tongue in cheek. But, I mean, I think he actually probably said it out loud. Now,
3: now that you brought up Coach Ryans, I have one little quick story with him. Back... When he had the great team, 73, 74, 75. I, I forget who they're playing, but he is on the referee hard. And, I mean, he's giving this guy grief every time he comes down the floor. And the guy told him, he said, you set your butt in that chair <laughs> and don't leave it. Next thing you know, Coach Rines has his – he's standing up holding the chair to his <laughs> butt, yep. trying to move down the sideline.
2: That that probably paints the best picture of him. <laughs> right, that's, yeah. You know, that's pretty funny. But I, I had the chance to talk to him about race because he was a coach as well. Mm-hmm. And and he had a lot of black players on, on his team. And um, he said the same thing about Coach Bailey. And Coach Ryan's was, was the same way. I mean, he had to get everyone on his team to, to buy into what right. he was trying to do. Black, white, brown, green, whatever. I think the coaching staff, or the coaches... I think they did a pretty good job of that back then. Because they did.
3: I, I don't recall. I mean, those guys were just brothers to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're, you're out there for the same cause. Ricky Bruner, who's, I don't know if he's still doing the rec I think center. he still is, yeah. Is he? Ricky was one tremendous athlete. Big, fast. You know, Ricky was like a brother to me. He he played baseball with us growing up, and my dad just loved Ricky Bruner, Ronald Shaw, all those guys. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're
2: and now Ricky Jr. is the head basketball basketball coach for the boys team.
1: Let's get back to the book real quick on on a couple of points. Sure. Um, like I said, I'm not going to go into a, a lot of detail because I want people to buy the book. It's a, it's a good book. I mean, you can get it through a digital download, a hard hard copy of it, a paperback mm-hmm. copy, or now the audiobook if you love to listen stuff. You know, while you're in the car or whatever. If you're not listening to my podcast, sure. And um, one of the things that bugged me about the story is how that he was convicted. Right. Rager was convicted. Yes. Of this, but he never served one bit of time no. for it. the entire time he was alive
2: yeah if you're wanting closure you're not going to get it in this book that part of it right and and that's
1: ultimately why i brought it up is because you know i was like yeah let's get him yeah okay that's great you know he needs to serve time he you know he he admitted to it well the problem is is that he was convicted i mean there was overwhelming evidence that you know obviously he did it but He never served one bit of time for it.
3: Right. I saw him. I saw him between it was sometime after the trial Mm. and before he passed away. I couldn't tell you when in there, but going through old Malgi, and he's sitting on the the front porch of the (laughs) house, Mm -hmm. just sitting out there. Yeah. You know, and that's
2: that story. It has been repeated to me so many times by so many different people. It's either that he was sitting on his mom's front porch uh, because from what I understand, his wife divorced him and, and moved. The family away Mm -hmm. uh, And he moved back With his mom In Okmogi It's either that Or he was just seen Walking around town Yeah uh, Free I mean After he had been convicted To me that is amazing Well and that's the That's the part about the book That I really tried to Make people understand Is that even the justice system was different back then. There mm-hmm. were certain things that you could do back then that you can't do now. Like there was an appellate bond where right. even if you were convicted of murder, you could file, uh, you know, you could pay a bond right. and you could be out while your conviction was being appealed. appealed. Yeah. Um, not only that, I mean, if you think that the mental health system is bad now, it was even worse back then right. to where you could fake like you were mentally ill and they would send you to... Uh, a mental institution for a while And then when you started to kind of come around They'd send you back and say okay you've got to start Serving your time so then you just had to start acting crazy Again
1: yeah and, and ultimately That's right that's what worked right for him And you so know, I wanted to
2: make that clear Because because whenever mm-hmm. people who hadn't quite Finished the book or knew the story but Hadn't started started it yet they were like yeah He didn't serve a day in jail why is That so I wanted to Really make it clear why that happened And back in 1976 if you killed somebody, no matter how well you planned it for a year and you were meticulous and you follow this person around, you couldn't get more than second degree murder right. because first degree murder was reserved for political figures or police officers or emergency personnel, that right. kind of thing. So he wasn't going to get first degree murder no matter what. Yeah. I mean, some people were like, how did he not get the death penalty? You know? Yeah. It was like Again,
1: perfect opportunity and perfect example for the setup of the book too, is because to put you back in nineteen seventy six, yeah, because exactly. we we have a tendency to be stuck in whatever year we're in now, sure. And that just didn't happen that way. That it was, I mean, it was changed eventually. But even in the in the justice system, that's how it worked. Well, and even so, the fashion, crazy.
2: You know, the fashion of the time, sure. Or what buildings might have been in Sepulpa or businesses that aren't there now. Yeah, I I called Terry and, and he was like, man, there was a was there a slaughterhouse or not a slaughterhouse? Was Yeah, it a-
3: yeah the. P- Wickham's, pack. yeah, see, yeah, Wickham's packing, packing, yeah, packing brick
2: and there were like three glass plants yeah. now there's one you know I mean he was telling me you know this was here this was there this was yeah. a big part of you know people a lot of people worked here mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing and I wanted to paint that picture because I'm addicted to like b horror movies <laughs> um like the the worse acting the better for me sure but when I watch it and I was like and it's like okay 1972 blah 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 and you you Click play and start to watch it. That people have today's haircuts and they're wearing today's. It makes me so mad because it's like they didn't even try. Yeah, you know, I want to it to look like 1972, and that and so I wanted to do that for this and really paint that picture of the bell bottoms and the butterfly collars and the plaid pants and the stripes and yeah, absolutely. The 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 outfit that Bailey was wearing Mm -hmm. whenever he left and and what he was found. Uh, dead end, it was plaid pants, a purple leather jacket, you know, and mm-hmm. a butterfly collar thing. And, you know, I mean, that was just the style back then. Right. So I, I wanted to paint that picture. And
1: I think you did a great job in in the book for that. To me, that's part of what makes the story so enthralling and a page turner is because I was taken back to that time period, reading each piece, the backstory on how that is. And I know that you had cooperation Uh, by, you know, the Bailey family Mm -hmm. and several people um, with Terry. And, man, I'm glad you were here today to hear your thoughts on that time period. But more importantly, you know, like I said, I think it sounds like, you know, it was a good thing that this book was written because it helped you kind of get things
3: out. I think that's true for a lot of people that read that, that lived through it.
1: I mean, I've seen some reviews myself as well, and I've seen a lot, you know, hey, I, I, I went to school with, with uh, you know, Bailey's son or I. You know, I was there that day, and I remember that and how scared we were after we figured out that, oh my gosh, they're missing. But then when word got out that Bailey had been found, and then word got out, oh my gosh, Rager was found alive, but this is what they think. You could see that creeping in, that fear turned to, you know, the questions to fear to, you know, finally hearing some of the truth. So when you were going through the book, after the book came out, mm-hmm. you were, we were talking about the family, and yeah. you had talked with guy Mm -hmm. a little bit but you also you had some contact was it with his wife
2: yeah um when i talked to guy it was back during the like the information gathering stage and again he gave me just some great stuff about his dad about that morning about just the time and i felt like it was really cathartic for him as well to kind of get that out from what he knew Mm -hmm. so then i just lost touch i mean i mean there was really no reason for me to contact him. I had put the book away. So whenever I started back up again, I talked mainly with, uh, one of Jerry's sisters. She was very supportive and everything. And she wanted me to make sure that guy, you know, got a copy. Well, before I even had a chance to send it to him, guy's wife reached out to me, Mm -hmm. um, on social media and said, Hey, will you send two copies? And I said, sure. She's like, I want one for guy. And then I'd like you to make another one out to Jerry Bailey. Hmm. And immediately it kind of freaked me out um, right. and I thought, that's so weird. And then I realized that guy's oldest son is named Jerry. Mm. Uh, and so it was really an honor to sit down and, and write to him and say, I wish I could have met your grandfather and, uh, you know, this book is to honor his memory and, wow. and everything. Yeah. Talking with her was great. And then um, she, they got their copies and then she sent me another message back and, I asked how he liked it, and she said he really liked it, and it answered so many questions for him because he didn't know a lot of what was in there because they just didn't talk about. Yeah, it. Yeah, you but, were
1: talking to me about it in in that you said that. Uh, well, you know, there was a couple of parts in the book that were pretty difficult, yeah. And, and you were like, "Oh yeah," and you were thinking, you know, when you talked about the autopsy or what, right. you know, when you talked about those things, and you were like, "Yeah, you know," I tried to not put a lot of detail in the book like that, but. It was funny because that was, yeah, that was her answer. It was like, no, actually, that wasn't yeah. what it was. It was the fact that, you know, I didn't have those answers. As Guy said, right. I didn't have those answers whenever. Well, I'm sure that they,
3: they tried to shield yeah. Guy and Deidre. That's exactly them. right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, from everything that was going on the, yeah. the best they could back then.
2: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me that I don't even know how Guy and Beverly and Deidre are doing. And a lot of them didn't know that, that Beverly had passed. hmm this is, I don't even know if this is necessary, but so many guys that went to school back then with, with guy and, and Deidre, one of their main questions was, is Deidre still as beautiful as she was back in, <laughs> back in high school? Cause she is gorgeous. Like her mom, mm-hmm. Beverly was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, I haven't had the chance to meet uh, Deidre in person, but I'm, I'm sure she absolutely is. But uh, a lot of people ask how Guy was doing, and they would say, you know, I I walked him down to the hall, you know, or I walk I was an office aide and I had to walk him down to the office, you know, after mm-hmm. they found out. Or, day, yeah. Some people I believe, some people it didn't like the timeline didn't match up. They kind of right. had put themselves in it, but they obviously were friends, yeah, and and they really truly cared about mm-hmm. you know how how. Guy and and Deidre were doing. and That, to me, also shows how much the family meant to the town. People wanted to know how they were doing.
1: And that probably ought to, I mean, that would probably ought to make you feel pretty good, too, about the book. Uh, Just the fact that number one, you got the facts right, but on top of that, how much therapy maybe, I don't know if that's quite the word, but Kind of therapy that came from the book from people who didn't know i mean number one setting the record straight you know here's the facts this is what ha- actually happened it wasn't a screwdriver it wasn't right. in the parking lot of the high school you know these are the things the timeline behind it and stuff like that so talking to terry I- you know, I think it was it was lethargic for everybody to, to kind of get all that out and, uh, and to just work through that, uh, you know, once and for all. So. Sure.
2: I mean, I think so. When Terry was finished with it, it was less than 24 hours that mm-hmm. I had published it. And uh, he called me and just said, you know, basically, you nailed it. And that meant a lot to me because the information that he gave me and that other people gave me, I wanted to be able to tell their story as well, mm-hmm. because they were a part of this, and so to be tasked with that is kind of stressful thinking about mm-hmm. it. But like I said, not many people have really challenged me on whether it's uh, truthful or, or whatever. Well, and I think too, you
1: know, I, I, like I read a couple of uh, different comments uh, as well. Uh, I get in trouble by reading comments too much, you <laughs> know, because it makes reading. me want to. Yeah, it makes me want to <laughs> fight too. But um, you know, one of the comments I heard was something about how tacky it was that you were talking about this murder right, after right. it had been put away and everything else, but. But you know what the thing the way i look at that is especially after reading the book three times now i didn't find anything in there that was gratuitous we've talked about it before how that um in research that you went to the archives you were doing the research and mm-hmm. you were collecting pictures and things that were part of the transcripts right. the court and the trial, all those yeah. records the trial and the funny thing was you know i remember you telling me he said i was you know working through a lot of these the pictures are there the autopsy photos are there things are part of the record and you He said, I was making copies of some of this stuff so I wouldn't forget it and I would be able to recall it easier. And and then they came in with a box uh, full of stuff and said, you know, well, actually, these are all copies of this stuff here. You know, take these. And so for me, the thing I thought was... Uh, was interesting was the fact that you had those pictures you had that information and those things that you could have right but you didn't and i think to me that shows restraint and respect and also in wanting to get the story correct because you know of that
3: how how can anybody argue when he's got court transcripts Mm -hmm. he's got the autopsy he's got pictures and he's got you know he's talked to people that were there
1: directly involved yeah you know yeah.
3: and
2: that's and that's the thing you know I love true crime we've talked mm-hmm, about that sure. and most of the time when you open up a true crime book there are a lot of times there's a picture of the crime scene right. or or part of you know the feet or something yeah. like that you know I just thought it was so unnecessary because since it has been put away for so long that to me is the last thing I want people to see yeah. w- when they pick the you know right. I, I just I don't want them to see it at all well the I book
3: know. the book paints paints the picture yeah. it does right you know, so yeah. you're you're right. Don't, you didn't you're need absolutely all right. that right yeah
2: and he, a funny story about when we went to the archives Greg Stone who's actually the provost of TCC the metro campus mm-hmm. at the time he was the assistant editor of the Sepulpa Herald uh, where I was working and we took a day off and we went down to the archives well we snuck his laptop and his scanner in because it's like a dollar a page right. if they print it off <laughs> <Right>. for <laughs> you You're so, get a bill now. so yeah <laughs> so I was the lookout and he's scanning as many trial you know transcripts he did the pictures first everything like that I, we're a couple hours in into it, and the lady comes over with a box, and she's like, "I found this. We made duplicates of everything for some reason. You can just have it." <laughs> and, you know, he's he's trying to he's trying to oh, cover yeah, well, yeah. that's a nice he's trying uh, to <laughs> cover his laptop like nothing's going on, you know, and I, we literally could have picked the bo- box up and left, yeah. you know. But they probably saw us doing that and thought, you know, we'll give them a couple yeah. hours and yeah. then we'll <laughs> yeah. give them the box. Yeah, we'll let this deception go on for yeah, a little while. Exactly. They're really putting some effort yeah, into it. over will see there how far they portable. take right. this. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let me ask you, what's next for you? Man, I don't know, but I've had so many people ask me, what is next? And it's, it's weird, but it's awesome at the same time when someone says, I love your writing style. What are you, what's your next book about? It's like, oh man, I didn't think that far ahead. Like I'm an author now. Right. You you know what I mean? I still have my real job, but like people have asked me, I want to read your next book. What's it about? Me too. And I haven't gotten that far, Mm. even though they've asked me this in the past year, uh, or since January. Right. So I don't know. I'd like to keep it local. And I'd like for it to be true crime and and you know have a history behind it. I know that there have been some things that have some murders that have happened in Sand Springs that uh, some are solved, some are unsolved. I know the Dina Dean, Dean cases um, yeah. been really popular lately. Yeah. They and as of late, right? I started yeah, saying they, they thought they had open, uh, reopened. That yeah, they just reopened mm-hmm. it, and I don't know if anybody's working on one of those. But I need to start you know asking around. And, right. And it, from where I'm from in Creek County, I mean Terry can tell you there. You want not know, talk about crime? there you know there's a reason that it's nicknamed crook county but i mean there have been there have been some serious stuff i i'm kind of putting you on the spot terry but uh my dad was telling me that he swears up and down that there was a lady who i think owned a brothel uh yes looking for and my dad said you've got to if you want to do one you need because there was a bombing
3: oh is that right there was all kinds of stuff tied into her and people after her and so did we just figure out what my next book's gonna be i think so and you're gonna help me you know what's really weird (laughs) I think we just figured it out. Right Back when I was selling real estate, I sold that property. I had to go to Wagner. I had to run down her brother, who was elderly and ill, to sign a quick claim deed to get this property sold. And it was it was Cleo Epps's brother.
2: Now, I'll give you a quick... Now, this is just... Mm-hmm. I me. Mean, I have not researched this at all. Right. But this is just what I've heard. This is going to go into... You are the, getting this, scoop right now. This, but actually, this uh, is uh, going to uh, get into the rumor part right? of like what we've had to deal with <laughs> with my book. But... <laughs> Uh, My dad told me—so if this is wrong, then it's my dad's fault. Okay. But my dad told me that uh, she was involved in in some bad stuff. And there was a police officer that was on her payroll, basically, or that she was having a a relationship with. But her boyfriend found out and then killed the police officer?
3: That I don't know.
2: Something to that effect.
3: I know. She was a bootlegger, so there was— Okay. That tells you— you know, the kind of people she was dealing right. with. Right.
2: So there was all kinds of stuff here and there. And mm, so the I've, bloody brothels.
1: So, I can hear it. Well, now. you know, it well, was, I don't know if it was a. I heard she was maybe into that, <laughs> but I don't know.
3: It was out there off of West 81st Street or something out there. It's where this land was. It's out north of Sepulpa. Okay. Off of New Sepulpa Road. Okay. And a lot of the Creek County Mafia, yes. so to speak. <laughs> What we used to it. hang out. What was the, the steakhouse over there? That was Avalon Avalon. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The, the old Avalon, not now, the, now, not, now, not yeah,
2: the, the, the old one. Avalon. It was kind of back. Mm-hmm. It wasn't right off the road. Right. And when you walked in, it was like, a. it felt like a mafia kind of see, place. See,
1: I've always felt that same way about the Celebrity Club at 31st and you, know, you walk in and it's all red velvet <laughs> yeah. and there's booths in the corner and you expected either Don Rickles to come out and roast you, you know, or Frank Sinatra to come out and sing a tune or something. And then people show up with Tommy guns because I mean, it feels that way to me too. Sure. No, no, I'm not see, saying that
2: it is, but I'm just saying it's what it feels like. That I love yep. because we're so removed from it. Right. Um, that it's stuff that I want to sink my teeth into because I think I, I think I hear and
1: see another book for me. who knows uh, another partnership here. I see.
3: I have to ask, is this going anywhere? The book now?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've sold,
1: quite well, a few
3: I, I'm not talking about sales oh you're
2: talking about like a movie yeah I did have something in the works it fell through felt like I really wanted to step back because it was moving so fast and the guy was wanting to move forward a lot faster I started to
1: say that now before you you know somebody says well now wait I figured you would want it to be a movie oh I do it, you do but I want to clarify real quick it was kind of pressure yeah from this person yeah and you were like whoa hang on a second why do you need to know that fast and why do you need to because a lot of that works like that. They'll they'll come in. They'll buy a bunch right. of transcripts or whatever. You don't have any control
2: over it yeah. after that point. So that was the problem with control. Yeah. It, I mean, it, w- it was know. like we've got a short window yeah. to do this. Don't worry about what the paperwork says. Yeah.
1: See, and yeah, and it's I would. Right here. And yeah. That would be yeah. the same way. I mean, that's one thing that you did say. Was you a know, black piece of there, paper with a line at the bottom. There's nothing. There's no writing on there. Well, there we'll will fill be. It in. Yeah, there will be. <laughs> we'll right. Fill it yeah. In. So no, I I think that's a great move on your part because
2: I think it could have been done, mm -hmm. but I think I would have given up a whole lot. Yeah. And then when it was all said and done, been like, if it was successful, I don't think I would have seen monetary. Quite the monetary. (laughs) Yeah. But I've had a few other people say that they know people. And so it's it's. Kind of dead right now As right. far as that goes But I'd love to see it
1: But if it's meant to be It's going to be meant to be And I think, that, I, think so. I think it was a wise choice On your part Honestly for that um, You know just wait Just wait on that But I and think I It, I really it would make a great film It I would make so. a great film But I think you're right
2: I probably shouldn't have Thrown it out there On social media That I was talking to A screenwriter in Hollywood yeah. Because you know That stuff I mean, there have been movies written and bought and all that kind of stuff that sat on a shelf for 10 years yeah, and then was eventually made or or not or scrapped. So I kind of jumped the gun on that. But it was something in the works. But, you know, I
1: hate for it to be shelved and then not be, you know, something... You know, that somebody can have access to to start looking at for film. So that's great. So I know that you have the book out and it is available for uh, purchase for digital readers mm-hmm. and things like that. Also for paperback, which yep. I've got my copy sitting right next to me right now. And um, you also recently it became an audiobook.
2: Yeah. Tantor Media reached out to me and said uh, we saw how this was doing through Amazon and we want to buy the rights to the, uh, audiobook And mm-hmm. so we worked out some numbers and took them about two months. They had to hire the actor and, and he read it and, you know, they sent me a couple of emails. How do you pronounce Rager? How do you, you know, how do you say this or whatever? And once they got all that down, it was released probably two, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I really haven't checked on it to see. How, I mean, they, they told me that, you know, it's gonna do really well at first, and then we'll you know track it and all that. He down, just
3: right. he just waits for that check. Yeah, that's right. right. That's all right. I just sit
2: waiting for the check. Lighting my cigars, rain, rain with money, right? Hundred dollar bills. Right.
1: Well, I wouldn't be lying if I didn't say that I was a little sad that I wasn't reading your book, but you know that's okay.
2: I wish I, I they didn't even give me a choice. Yeah, I it was that happened fast too, and you know I've never done this before. This yeah. is, and I don't have an entertainment lawyer, you know, or or anything like that. So, right. kind of would ask my parents, like, does this sound like a good deal to you? Yeah. What do you What do you think yeah. of this? Yeah, <laughs> not that I've ever taken their advice, but. Right. I, I
1: will say, actually, if you are, if you would love to read, you know, read, but uh, you just don't have the time, maybe you're in the car driving a lot during the day or whatever, it would be worth it to go out and get the audio version uh, so that you can listen to it as you go. I think you'll you will find it a good book. I'm telling you, this is a good story. I mean, it is a very good story about a tragic thing that happened. And um, I learned a lot about it. I had passed the Bailey building several times. I lived in Sepulpa for quite a while. Never knew why it was named the Bailey building. I just knew that it was the Bailey building. So it filled in a lot of things but if you are a true crime fan you'll love this book i appreciate it i have a little question here it was brought to your attention so here it is kirk i know you don't have an answer for this but as a former teacher i just don't understand why jerry left school with paul that day jerry had a first hour class i just cannot understand what could have been so important that he would have cut his first
2: hour without telling someone
1: what's your answer to that
2: the answer is there is no answer i i don't know but if i was to speculate Mm -hmm. It would be that he thought he was helping Rager in some way, that he he either needed counsel or he needed something. But I think that's the answer we will never get because there's only two people that know it and they're both dead.
1: So let me ask you this final question on that. And I want your I want your answer as well, because really yours more than his because of the fact that you saw them that morning. Do you think that he lured him out there to kill him or do you think that it happened? You know, do you think it happened like at a spur of the moment or the, you know,
3: I think he lured him out there Mm -hmm. and the reason being he had a knife. He, he, that knife was, I don't know whether it was on him or in the car, but he had a knife. So premeditated. I yeah, so I,
2: think? I think so too. It was like, yeah. it was one of his kitchen knives. So yeah. he would have had to have put it in his car for some reason it was under a seat so whenever he stopped and and said hey i want to show you something in the trunk and he gave the keys to bailey he did that to get him out so he could then pull the knife out because if he does that while they're both sitting in the car jerry might have more of a chance to defend himself
1: yeah because the thing was you know like you had alluded to he was a big guy paul paul was a big guy and rigger was a big guy and so he could have easily overpowered him whenever they were outside the vehicle and and it wasn't fat he was
2: muscle right yeah i mean he
1: was a solid guy so therefore, that's the other thing, you know. um And Bailey was was smaller than him, although muscular, and you know, I mean, was All athletic right. as well. We can coach. And you think the same? You think oh, that absolutely. he, you know, premeditated? Yeah, absolutely. He,
3: you know, in a, in a in a fist fight without weapons, Coach Bailey would have had a chance. Yeah, but he he, he got stabbed right away. Yeah. Had to.
2: Matter of fact, he Bailey had a cut on his eye that the medical examiner either thinks was from the knife you know just the Mm -hmm. crazy or that he was punched and kind of dazed and then stabbed so Mm. i I think he absolutely had every intent wow because just like you said because of the hate and he let that fester for some reason he thought the only way to to remedy that was to kill him and it was all based on false information yeah
1: stuff that he was given uh, information that he was given that was false
2: yeah another criticism really quick that I got from several different people was that they wanted me to lay the blame at the feet of someone who's now passed. And I didn't feel comfortable doing that because I didn't have absolute proof. Right. I think they might be right, but that doesn't mean i can print it
1: well and besides that even if it was right he still chose to do it right so i mean yeah it, you lay it at, lay it where it belongs you know rigor i mean people
2: screw you over all the time right you move on and you may remember it right and you're
1: not you know okay i won't make that mistake again yeah but yeah i mean you don't kill somebody over no. it. so that's still you know yeah to me that would be still laying it at his feet not anybody else's so. well and as far yeah. as
2: well yeah and as far as like his mental health, a lot of people don't even know. And I think Terry learned this for the first time was that two weeks before he actually murdered Bailey, he had tried to kill himself and right. was, was put for the first time that we know of admitted into at least the mental part of hillcrest because yeah,
1: that's mentioned in the book right. about the fact that he had missed some school days yeah. and the the thing you know i think that uh when you where you were talking about the why did he cut class because he genuinely cared for people and he figured oh paul needs to talk and, and we yeah. need to work through something here you know, let's go somewhere and we'll just i'll help you with that
2: because i think if they come back to school then i think jerry could easily go to the administration and say hey i I think this guy was having trouble. He was unbalanced and he needed to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And he either would have gotten in trouble or they would have said, hey, thanks for yeah. trying to help. But I, I think he was trying to help in some way. Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't want to give away a ton about the book because, I like that. I said, I want people to read this book. It, it is so fantastic. And I totally agree with you, Terry. I think it's a it's a great book. But on top of that, I think it helped a lot of people uh, to be able to, number one, get the facts on the case. People that I know that have grown up in Sepulpa as well have said the same thing. They'd be, oh, my gosh, I've read this book and I can't believe that. I, I thought all these things all these years thought he was found and I thought it was a disgruntled parent and or I thought it was a screwdriver I thought it was something else and to to get that information out it was good for the third time when I read the book I was still just as much turning the page trying to finish up the book so it's a good one like I said if you don't have time to to read it all then uh, go out and download the um, audio version of it I guarantee you you won't regret it it's a good one thank you guys both for being here thank you very much thank you for being here Terry thank you for letting me meet you and then also for
2: being on the show you're welcome now me and Terry have some work to do. We got another book to write. I'm telling you,
1: I think so, and and then you can be back here That's again, right, exactly. and we'll talk about the new book. You got it. Uh, the Bloody Brothel, or the the Brothel the, Who the Speaks, or the, the Bootleg Brothel, or something. <laughs> I, I, I see it already in my head. All right. That's Great. Well, man, thank you both for being here today. Thanks, man. Thank you.
0: This episode of the Behind the Mic Podcast was brought to you by Mojo Merchandise. Never miss a show by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go to our Facebook page and leave a comment, invite a friend, and share our podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening to Behind the Mic with Rick Hampton.